It's always nice to start a sermon with, uh, on a positive note. Uh, so imagine, if you will, that you have a disease, uh, a deadly one. Even worse, suppose that one symptom of your disease is that it causes you to deny that you have the disease. Well, that's exactly what sin is and what sin does to us. Sin is not technically a disease, but it does have symptoms, and these symptoms are obvious. To start with, we do bad things. Somehow we just know that certain things we do are bad, they're wrong, they're sin. At the end of the day, you don't have to read the Ten Commandments again to bring you to say, uh, I guess I did that wrong, and, uh, and that other thing wasn't what I was supposed to do. We just know don't we? But what happens? We, we, we make excuses for ourselves and for others so that our sins are, are made out to be not so very serious. And to help ourselves along, we, we go to the defense of others, explaining that certain sins are not really sin, uh, at least that they don't really matter all that much. So another symptom of sin is that we hurt ourselves. If you hit your thumb with a hammer, you know it hurts. And yet when you hurt yourself by your sin, somehow we manage to grimace long and hard, biting our lip and our tongue, all the while denying that we've been hurt. I think there I think here of the of the little boy who who just learned to ride his bike, but he immediately gets uh, uh, quite a bit too bold, uh, too eager to expand his abilities, uh, too reckless in the end. Uh, perhaps he's even showing off for the, the little girl who lives two doors down and is sitting on her front porch. And, and so the display of his skills ends with a display of how much he has yet to learn. He wrecks, he crashes, he, he comes up bloody, and teary-eyed, and yet he still has the wherewithal to say, loud enough for anyone watching to hear, ha-ha, I meant to do that. Of course, yet another symptom of sin is that we hurt others around us. Uh, It's one thing to crash your bike and skin your own knees. Uh, It's quite another to run your bike into another person and hurt them But this too we do in our sin, and and yet here especially perhaps, we make excuses, we explain away, we we try to move on without comment or consequence by putting the, the distance of time and location between us and those whom we have hurt in our sin or by our sin. Well, in case you... In case you hadn't noticed, the common thing between all of these scenarios of sin is the denial of sin. Uh, whether it's a sin with no apparent victim, ourselves or someone else, or whether it's sin by which we hurt ourselves or someone else, we deny it. This too is sin. And that's the point, that one of the symptoms of sin is that we deny that we are sinners all of which brings things down to this, that the thing that makes sin so deadly is pride. 
the child who, who wrecks his bike and, and still runs home uh, to be patched up by his mother or father does so with at least a degree of humility. The person who hurts himself or someone else at least maybe says sorry and is prepared not to do it again. But, but sin goes deeper than that, doesn't it? God's Word, the Bible, says that the wages of sin is death. And so the, the Christian life can, can really be summed up in, in these quite easy-to-understand terms. You know you're going to die because nobody escapes death. And the Bible even teaches that you know that when you die, you will have to stand before God as your creator to be judged by him as a just and holy God. And so you are seeking salvation. Someone might say, no, I I don't know that. Uh, I I don't believe it, and, and it's not true. But could it be that that's what sin has done to you, making you deny that you are a sinner and that you are under the judgment of God? That's what the Bible says. It says it is appointed unto man once to die, and after that comes judgment. And it says that the wrath of God is revealed to sinners, which means that it's not hidden. It's it's not secret. We really do know it. And that's why we run from God. Some people even tried to deny that God exists as if there could possibly be a creation without a creator. And it's even why sinners go on in sin, going further and further, deeper and deeper, because if judgment is coming, then you better get all the pleasure you can until that dreadful day of judgment. This morning, the story from God's Word that we have to learn from is a story that we might entitle Seeking Salvation. Because whether we will admit it or not, that's what we're all seeking, salvation. It's just that we are looking for love in all the wrong places. Okay, I know that dates me. So let me, let me put it a little differently. We are looking for salvation in all the wrong places, or, or better put for our purposes here, we are seeking salvation in all the wrong places And that's the deadliest symptom of sin. That in order to preserve our pride, in order to be able to snap our fingers and have the best chance of skipping happily through this life, we deny our sin and we reject the salvation that God provides in Jesus Christ. So the first point this morning is seeking survival. You thought maybe I was going to say seeking salvation, and, and, and I might have said that because, again, that's the overall idea and message of this chapter of God's Word. But it begins as we see uh, Jacob uh, simply seeking survival. He simply wants to continue uh, to live and not die. Genesis 42, verses 1 and 2 records when when Jacob learned that there was grain for sale in Egypt, he said to his sons, why do you look at one another? It it would seem to be a a facetious question. 
uh, a question of exasperation. Uh, I would argue it's, uh, it's likely even a question of desperation. By way of the famine that uh, had come upon the land, the very famine that God had foretold through Pharaoh's dream and Joseph's interpretation, Jacob is desperate. He's at least deeply annoyed by the fact that there's nothing they can do. There's no way to eat. There's no way to survive except by going down to Egypt where Jacob has heard there is food. And so he says this, Behold, I have heard that there is grain for sale in Egypt. Go down and buy grain for us there. And then here it is, that we may live and not die, that we may survive. It's hard for us, uh, if not impossible, I think, to enter into the experience of not having enough food to eat. Uh, Simple survival would seem uh, so easy for us. If anyone understands it, it's it's the breadwinner of the family. Uh, Children presume upon their parents, but it's the parents, or at least one of them, who, who can't presume upon anyone except their own hard work. But what if the work goes away? What if the company goes out of business? What if the economy goes sour and uh, our portfolios dwindle down to pennies on the dollar? Someone might say, oh, let's not go there. We don't even want to think about that possibility. The, the bread lines of the, of the Great Depression need to stay in the history books. That couldn't happen again, or could it? Don't get me wrong, to some, degree, uh, to some degree, maybe children should be able to presume upon their parents. Uh, that's what childhood is, at least what it should be, a time of innocence and, and comfort, a, a time to grow and, and to learn. And yet it wasn't always that way. I, um, I enjoy reading the uh, Little House on the Prairie books, uh, and uh, right now I'm reading Farmer Boy, a uh, a chapter to each night. It's the story of Laura Ingalls' husband, Almanzo, and his uh, years as a boy growing up uh, on a farm in, in upstate New York. But uh, really, no matter which of the Little House books you, you read, the, the thing that comes across so clearly is, is the struggle to survive. That, that basic, simple survival was the matter of hard work. The irony is that the work by which they survived would probably kill any one of us in uh, a short week's time. Uh, And granted, Almanzo's family, the Wilders, were actually quite well off, but they lived that way by way of hard work, planting, harvesting, uh, preserving and, and storing up food, breeding and training animals. Life was about work. If the sun was up, There was work to be done, except on the Sabbath. But as the story goes west, as the American frontier was faced head-on, the story isn't nearly about being well-off, but about survival. If you didn't work, you didn't uh, survive. If you didn't store up the food you need, if you didn't uh, gather, chop, and stack the wood that you needed to burn, you did not survive the winter. And in those days, winter came around once every year. 
The point is to see Jacob and his family in the same light. Survival was on the line. And the point is to see that the same is true for us. When God banished Adam and Eve from the Garden of Eden, it wasn't so much his judgment in the final sense, but his discipline through a life of hard work. It's hard to believe that uh, this sermon series on Genesis started with those earliest chapters uh, of God's Word. But if, if you remember back to Genesis 3, we heard God saying to Adam, By the sweat of your brow, by the sweat of your face, you shall eat bread until you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for dust you are, and to dust you will return. So the point was certainly not that Adam would be able to work his way back to living forever. You are dust, and to dust you shall return, said God. And the implication is clearly that to dust you shall return despite the sweat of your brow and your hard work. In the meantime, if Adam would keep alive, he must seek survival. He must work hard to remain alive. And the lesson of God's discipline in in this is the same for us, to show us our weakness, to show us that even basic survival is a struggle, even harder than is the work to accomplish eternal life. So here's where we see the grace of God, even in his punishments. Sounds contradictory, doesn't it? But we see the grace of God even in his punishments. Here's where we see that that his grace is found in every red light, in every setback, in every cancellation, in every illness, in every struggle. God is not a vindictive God, certainly not toward his own children. Do you spank your children just to spank them, just to show them your anger and your power over them? Hopefully not. And neither would our Father in heaven see us suffer. But He does discipline us. He would awaken us that we might not deny our sin. Through the day-to-day struggle to survive, He would teach us to rely upon Him and ultimately to receive from Him the salvation that comes by His work for us, even as our sweaty brows only lead to the grave. Next is seeking reconciliation, because that's what Joseph is doing in the story. Jacob sends his sons to Egypt. His sons come before Joseph, and now Joseph's dream is fulfilled. Verse 8 or verse 6 records now Joseph was governor over the land. Uh, He was the one who sold to all the people of the land. And Joseph's brothers came and bowed themselves before him with their faces to the ground. This was not a genuflect, this was them falling prostrate before him. Verse 7 adds Joseph saw his brothers and recognized them. His dream was not forgotten. Verse 9 even says, And Joseph remembered the dreams that he had dreamed of them. But the real point is that God had not forgotten. 
And what I mean by that is that the word of God spoken through Joseph's dream had not failed to come to pass. His brothers bowed low before him, even as he had dreamed. But what now? It's an amazing scene. Uh, It's a very pregnant moment, as we say. Uh, And and except that we know the story, we we might stop and and ask the question, uh, what do you think will happen next? Teachers are known to do this as they're uh, leading their students to to read a book. Uh, What do you think will happen next? It's an exercise that serves... uh, creative thinking, but, uh, but here we're not so much interested in creative thinking as we are in the meaning of the text, and, and even more, what we see of our Savior Jesus in this. On one hand, we might think that uh, a vengeful Joseph would uh, capitalize on the moment. Uh, why shouldn't he jump forward and say, ha, I am Joseph, and, uh, and see, you did bow down to me, you miserable fools. Off with you and off with your heads, because now I have the authority to put you to death. But Joseph recognized his brothers, and as he overhears them talking, even talking about him, he is moved to compassion. What remains to the story is, is the reconciliation that Joseph brought about with his brothers. Rather than vengeance, he sought reconciliation. And here we see Christ. And here we see another aspect of, of our search for salvation. Joseph's brothers had come seeking just to survive. They needed grain in order to live and not die. What they got instead was reconciliation with the brother they had sold into slavery. It's actually, I think, a a much neglected aspect of of Christ's work in in, uh, providing the supply of salvation even for those who crucified Him. We see it first in the, in a sense, in the criminal who was was crucified with Him. Uh, One of the two uh, of those who were there who actually deserved to die. It, it would seem that this, this one man started out even cursing Jesus, as we compare the account from different Gospels, but as he died, he was even brought to faith. And, and of him, Jesus said, Today you will be with me in paradise. We see it also uh, among all the disciples, uh, most pointedly in Peter, he was the one of the twelve who uh, not only abandoned Jesus, but who even denied him publicly. I, I don't know him, said Peter. Uh, you are mistaken. I am not connected to that man, said, said Peter. As God is my witness, I am not a disciple of this man. So Peter swore for the third time to deny his Lord. And, and so in John 21, the resurrected Jesus, remember that we're hearing now about the resurrected Joseph, what he did with the new life that uh, was given to him as he was released from prison. Well, just so, the resurrected Jesus asked Peter three times, Do you love me? He could have said three times over, 
I don't know you, Peter. I don't know you, Peter. I don't know you, Peter. Instead, Jesus asked Peter three times, do you love me? And so Peter had the opportunity three times over to say, yes, Lord, I love you. And I would ask, what about you? Have you, have you told Jesus in prayer that you love him? If not, then why, when he has so loved you? You weren't there to deny him, not even once. But it was your sin, no less than Peter's, for which Christ suffered and died. We can only imagine what was in the heart of Joseph, sold by his own brothers, carried off to Egypt as a slave, falsely accused and, and, and spending years in an in a Egyptian dungeon. Now he was a great ruler in Egypt with the power and the authority to drop the hammer on the scoundrels that had uh, put him through all this. But this is who Christ is to you. And do, do you really understand this? Your sin brought him down from heaven, leaving his glory behind. Your sin required him to live for you, to suffer for you, to be condemned in your place, and to die for you. And yet today he would be reconciled to you. Not that he has done anything to harm you, but you have done so much to harm him And yet he would be reconciled to you, even as Joseph sought to be reconciled to his brothers. There's one more thing that needs to be said under this point. As was said earlier, Joseph had compassion on his brothers. But why did he have compassion on them? Why why did he even shed tears when he recognized them and, and heard that they were talking about him? Well, the answer is because they were his brothers. After all, they were yet his brothers. After all they had done for him, yet they were still his brothers. And and we need to understand that here is Jesus, our Savior, as well. The point of the gospel story is, is not that Jesus suffered, died, and rose again just to broadcast the offer of salvation like a radio advertisement. Jesus himself made it clear that that he laid down his life for his brothers. And he rose again from the the dead exactly for those uh, whom the Father had given him to save. You see the importance of these statements, these teachings from Jesus, so that hopefully we can see it. The the, the scene is the same, and I, I hope it's just as pregnant for us. As you are a believer in Christ, then you can know not only that he suffered and died for you, but that he suffered and died for you as his brother or sister. The compassion that Jesus has for you is because you are his brother. As you believe in Christ and and are saved by him, you can know that within the plan of God's salvation for sinners, you were counted as a brother. You are on the list, or you were on the list, and God had determined to save you. And he has now done so. 
Thirdly, seeking a sacrifice. Yes, once again, seeking salvation, but seeking salvation by a sacrifice. And here the connection is perhaps more clear. There must be a sacrifice in order for there to be reconciliation between Joseph and his brothers. And and it would seem that unlike Jesus, Joseph had to kind of figure out what he was going to do. Uh, it, it, It seems clear that Joseph was figuring out things as he was going along. First, he he keeps uh, uh, all of them in prison, uh, but then he decides to keep one of them, Simeon, in custody, telling the others to return home in order to bring the youngest brother, Benjamin, to prove that they're uh, telling the truth. Here's another point um, to see that the story is not an allegory. Uh, Not every detail or aspect of the story fits perfectly with the story of our Lord and our salvation through Christ. But here again is another common aspect, that salvation comes by way of sacrifice. First, there was Joseph, the beloved the beloved uh, uh, son of Jacob, who was sold for money by his own brothers, sold into slavery, sold to suffer, and sold to end up providing salvation even to those who sold him. Now Simeon, for a brief moment, at least in the story, brief for us, I'm sure it didn't go fast by too fast for him, but now he becomes the suffering son in order that his brothers might return home and, and bring the youngest son. But what we will see as we continue in weeks to come, uh, the Lord willing, is, is that the image passes then to Benjamin, from Joseph to Simeon, in this part of the story, but later from Simeon to Benjamin, from Benjamin we'll see to Judah as we see him stepping in to mediate, even offering himself in order that the others might go free. And yet the image never really passes from one son to the next. It's just that there are multiple images of the son, even the suffering son. And we must see from from a point very early on in the story of redemption, that a sacrifice is needed and that it will be the sacrifice of the Son. So this third point this morning is really maybe more of a preview. That's why I wasn't sure where to stop in terms of covering the text and, and, and therefore reading the text. This is kind of a preview. A preview. It's it, it's beginning now to to get um, clear in our in our understanding that that as we seek salvation, we must come, uh, it, and um, or salvation must come by the sacrifice of the Son, our Lord Jesus Christ. We've heard of the seed of Eve, but God called the seed of Eve He. So we we know that it's. It's the son of Eve. We've heard of the offspring of Abraham, and by way of Abraham's only begotten son Isaac, we we know that the one to come will be a son. We've we've heard of Jacob's two sons, or I'm sorry, Isaac's two sons, and uh, which would it be between the two? Uh, they were both scoundrels, but Jacob, uh, a son, was chosen. Uh, now Jacob has twelve sons, and which of them will it be? To some degree, they all take their turn serving uh, 
as the son who would save. But the point is to see the weakness, the the shortcoming of all sons until the Son of God will come. Cain, the son of Eve, even killed his brother rather than saving him. Isaac, the, the son of Abraham, was just too much like his father, repeating the sins of his father. Jacob was chosen, but was not any better than Esau, who was not chosen. The son, the son, the son, the son, the son. Let us not miss the pattern and let us not miss the point. Let us not miss the proclamation through all of Scripture of the coming of the Son. The suffering Son, the one promised by God, the one who fulfilled the promise of God. Do you remember how we said that the the two dreams of Joseph were really just one dream? And the the two dreams of Pharaoh were really just one dream. And so the many words of God in Scripture are really just one word, and that word is Christ. The same is true now again. The many promises of God, the many promises of God in the Bible are really just the one promise of salvation. We are all seeking salvation. We all know that we are going to die one day, perhaps very soon. And as much as we might try to make peace with death, we know, we really do know, that we need to be saved. And the promise of God in Christ is that the salvation we seek is from Him. And that the promise of God was fulfilled and is fulfilled in our own day. It was fulfilled in the Son, our Savior, our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Let us pray together. Every time we hear of a son, O God, in your word, may we, as Israel of old surely did, may we anticipate in the story the coming of the son, your son, dear Father, and our Savior, Jesus Christ. But in our lives, may we see that we live in the fulfillment of the son, And that we need not look for salvation anywhere else as if it even could be found. Except in Jesus Christ. May we trust in him and indeed love him. And may we rejoice in him each and every day. In his name we pray. Amen.